Micah chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Let's pray together before we turn to God's word. Father, we ask for your help as we turn now to your word. We pray, Lord, that you will illumine the pages of scripture before us. We pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. There are, of course, uh, 16 uh, books of prophecy in the Old Testament. Four of them are described as major and uh, 12 of them are described as minor. The reason that they are referred to, the 12 are referred to as minor, has nothing to do with their significance or their value, but instead it has to do with their length. And, of course, Micah is one of the 12 minor prophets. Uh, The other four major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Ezekiel, and Daniel, of course, are much uh, more lengthy. But whether long or short, each of these prophets stood between God and his people and spoke on his behalf to the generation that they were a part of and also to the generations which would come after them. Micah, of course, fits uh, into this category. He came, Micah came from uh, a place called Morsheth. We're told that in Micah 1.1. It was about 25 to 30 miles southwest of Jerusalem, so uh, heading down towards uh, the territory of the Philistines in the foothills of Judah. I tell you that uh, information simply uh, to help you get a picture of what uh, Micah was like. Uh, because he came from down there, the ter- close to the territory of the Philistines, you have some picture of uh, the kind of world in which he lived. And also just to make the point that he was really a country boy who came to Jerusalem to speak to its inhabitants on God's behalf. We don't know much about uh, Micah's family background or his parents, really. Uh, His name, however, would suggest that he came from a home, a family context, where Yahweh was worshipped and valued and adored. Uh, The name Micah means, who is like Yahweh? And it's a provocative question that his parents gave uh, gave to him. Uh, A a question which would provoke uh, those who heard it to think about 
Who does compare with Yahweh? Certainly not the Canaanite gods uh, that the Israelites were running after. Yahweh was the, the, the incomparable God, uh, according to Micah's parents. Now, we don't give our children names haphazardly in the 21st century. Most of us take that responsibility fairly seriously. One of our children was about three weeks old before we finally settled on a name because we were conscious that uh, they would have to carry that name for the rest of their lives. And I had all kinds of suggestions that my wife didn't like, and it took us a long time just to nail it. So names were much more important in the Old Testament, and uh, it would appear that Micah's parents thought long and hard about the name that they gave him because they wanted to make a statement, and they wanted the people that they lived among to think seriously um, about Yahweh and uh, about the, the worship that, and, and the adoration that he deserved. Not many of us, I think, want to be too vocal or too in other people's faces when it comes to making statements about who God is or about his rightful claim over their lives. But that was certainly not true of Micah's parents. There was no holding back. And uh, they had a. They, they wanted to make a point at, 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 as they thought about the name that they would give to their son. So then Micah comes from way down there in the foothills of Judah, and he comes up to Jerusalem, and he begins to speak on God's behalf. His ministry then was directed mostly towards the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, at this stage. Israel was divided into two. You've got ten northern tribes and their capital is Samaria. And then you've got Judah and Benjamin, the southern kingdom, with their capital Jerusalem. And Micah's ministry is directed mostly towards the southern kingdom of uh, Judah. He ministered, we're told in verse 1 again, that he ministered during the reign of three kings. So his prophetic ministry spanned the reign of three of Judah's kings. Jotham, Ahaz, and then, of course, the, the better-known Hezekiah. Those kings, the, the, the reign of those kings span about 50 years from about 750 to 700 uh, BC, so a period of about 50 years. Now, it's unlikely that Micah ministered during the entire course of their reigns. Most think that he prophesied or ministered as a prophet for a period of about 20 to 25 years during the reign of those three kings, or part, part, partly during the reign of those three kings. Like all the other prophets, uh, he condemned sin. He pronounced judgment, the judgment of God, on uh, the idolatry and the greed of God's people. And that really uh, is the is at the heart of his message in this little prophecy. On a light-hearted note, I did notice as I read through, trying to catch a sense of what was happening in Micah, that in 1.16 he tells the people to make themselves bald and to cut off their hair. And uh, for some reason that resonated with me. I'm not just quite sure why. Um, but on a more serious note, he predicted the downfall of Samaria, the fall of Samaria, 
to the Assyrians, which took place in 722 BC. You can see in chapter 1, verse 6 of his prophecy that he speaks graphically about the downfall of Samaria. He, he also, in places like 310 and 410, uh, speaks about the downfall of Jerusalem, the southern kingdom, and its capital at the hands of the Babylonians which began in 597 and uh, the final onslaught against Jerusalem was in 586 BC. The time in which uh, Micah ministered was a time of national prosperity. It came in the aftermath of the prosperous reign of uh, one of Judah's better kings, King Uzziah. And Micah came to Jerusalem and one of the things what he began to do was he began to, first of all, denounce the rich for their oppression and exploitation of the poor. Uh, he was concerned that rather than rising up and helping those who were poor and suffering and vulnerable, that these people were exploiting them and abusing them and using them for their own purposes and their own ends. And he's uh, hostile towards this kind of behavior and he is fierce in his condemnation of the rich exploiting the poor. He also railed on the bribing of judges and the injustice that he witnessed in Jerusalem. The fact that justice could be bought by the highest bidder. It was a case of who had the most money would get the decision. And Micah is fearless again in condemning the injustice and the warped and twisted judicial system that was in place. He also blasted the false prophets who were sweet talkers. If you read through the book of Micah, you'll pick this up. Who were sweet talkers who would say anything that people paid them to say. What, what do you want me to be today? I'll be that if you pay me enough money. That was the religious leaders that uh, Micah conde condemned. So Micah arrives in Jerusalem and this is the kind of thing that he condemns along with the idolatry of God's people as they run after the Canaanite gods and as they forsake the God that brought them out of Egypt and into the promised land. As you read through Micah's prophecy, you'll see that he is clearly a man of threes. Uh, he would have made a great preacher, I think. Um, he, he, his book is made up of three cycles or Three oracles, if you want. Chapter 1, verse 2 sees the first one. Chapter 3, verse 1 sees the beginning of the second one. And I think it's chapter 6, verse 1 that sees the beginning of the third oracle that he delivers to the people of Jerusalem. And in these oracles, there is another breakdown of threes because what he does is he condemns the sin of the people in Jerusalem. And then he moves on to describe, secondly, the, the, the judgment that the people can expect because of their sin. But then finally, he always moves from doom and gloom to hope. And he outlines the fact that God is, is faithful despite their unfaithfulness. And he speaks about God's covenant faithfulness. And he speaks about a coming deliverer, a coming savior, who will be the solution to all of this sin and all of this judgment. So, Micah is very much a man of threes and he walks into Jerusalem and he begins to blast and preach at the same time pointing forward to uh, the coming of the Savior. I'm always amazed at the courage of these prophets to stand up and say what needs to be said. 
to stand up and be counted, to go against the flow, to speak out about things that are wrong, things like injustice and exploitation and the horrible acquiescence of religious leaders who claim to speak on God's behalf but speak lies. The prophets were absolutely fearless in, in, their, in, 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 their, in their speaking out about what they saw around them. And I find that hugely challenging as an individual. Not many of us are prepared to stand up and be counted for God and say what needs to be said whatever the conversations are being held that we are part of. Not many of us are prepared to stand up and say what needs to be said. Most of us shrink into a corner or quietly leave the conversation because we don't want to be counted on God's side. We want to acquiesce and fit in. At least I find that in my own life. That's a huge temptation. But wouldn't it be wonderful if we had a bit more of the courage of the prophets? who were prepared to say what needed to be said, wherever God takes us and wherever we find ourselves. I think some time ago I shared that I read about Athanasius. And uh, they came to him on one occasion and said to him, Athanasius, the whole world is against you. As, as they condemned his message, the whole world is against you. He, he responded by saying, well then, I am against the whole world. Who would ever have courage to the courage of their convictions uh, like that? Well, so much by way of the context and a bit of an introduction into Micah. Three things that I want to try and pick up on. I want you to think about the siege. I want you to think about the ruler. And I want you to think finally about the shepherd. I think in the, in the handout it says the, the, the siege, the savior, and, and uh, finally the shepherd. I'm going to change that middle one to ruler because it fits the, the passage, the wording of the passage a bit better. So if you have a pen, you can scribble that out and write in ruler. It would have been ruler if I had had time to think through this passage a bit more clearly. So three things then. First of all, the siege. In verse 1 of uh, Micah chapter 5, he begins to describe a, a siege. Those of us who... Uh, we, we, if we're honest, I think if we're honest, most of us hardly knew where to even look in the Old Testament for Micah, a difficult little book to find, and not many of us know much about it. Uh, if we know anything about it, if we've read through it, the, the one verse that we may know a little bit about, and the most famous verse in Micah, is Micah 6, 8. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That, that's, I think, the most famous verse, apart from Micah 5, too, famous verse in, in, in this little prophecy. What does the Lord require to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly? The problem that Micah was addressing is that these people in Jerusalem no longer wanted to act justly. And they no longer loved mercy, and they no longer wanted to act humbly uh, or walk humbly with their God. They loved evil. And they hated the good. They were a bit like the people that John describes in, in his gospel. Light had come into the world, but people loved the darkness rather than the light. And as a result, Micah is either describing the judgment of God that has come or is describing the judgment of God which will come in that the city of Jerusalem will be uh, besieged. It will 
an invading army will lay siege to this great city of Jerusalem. And that's what he describes in verse 1. He says, now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. And with a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Now, it's difficult to know uh, what siege Micah is referring to. And there there were at least three uh, major sieges that it could have been. Many think that it, it, it was the siege of Sennacherib's army, the Assyrians when they besieged uh, Jerusalem in 701 BC surrounded the city. Hezekiah was the king of Jerusalem. Of course, the northern kingdom uh, 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 with its capital Samaria had fallen in 722 BC and Sennacherib had come up against Jerusalem in 701 BC and had laid siege to it and uh, famine and hunger were rampant within the city walls and so on. And uh, Hezekiah was forced to buy off Sennacherib. He had to raid the temple treasury and so on. Actually took, I think, gold off the temple doors to buy Sennacherib off. And some people think that that's the siege that, uh, that, that Mike is thinking about. Others feel that the siege that he is thinking about is the siege of the Babylonians. Uh, where in, in uh, 597, the first of those major sieges, um, Nebuchadnezzar's army laid siege to Jerusalem and carried off in the end Jehoiakim as a prisoner along with his wife and his family and all of Israel or Jerusalem, Judah's craftsmen and uh, all of their intelligentsia carried them all off to Babylon as prisoners. Or it, it may have been a third siege under the reign of Zedekiah because when the Babylonians took uh, Jehoiakim off as prisoner, they left Zedekiah in charge, appointed Zedekiah, who was Jehoiakim's uncle, and made him king over Jerusalem. And then they returned in 587, 586, somewhere around there, and they laid siege to Jerusalem again. And this time they dragged Zedekiah out, killed his sons in front of him, and gouged out his eyes before they carried and dragged him across the desert as well to Babylon. The truth is, I don't know which of these sieges Micah is referring to. I think it doesn't really matter. I think the point is the same. The judgment of God is coming, or, or has already come. And, and, and the point is, the city will be surrounded, the food supply will be cut off, famine and hunger will be rampant, and the city will be in great danger. And Micah tells them to marshal their troops to defend themselves. Some have actually translated that, lance yourself which I find interesting, it's almost like it's a bit of mockery. Go and lance yourselves the way that the Canaanites do when they worship Baal. And you know the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal and how they gash themselves. And it's almost like Micah saying, why don't you go and gash yourself and cry out to the gods of the Canaanites, see if they'll come and help you. But probably best just to stick to the language of the ESV, marshal your troops, he says, and defend yourselves. Oh, daughter of troops. Interesting description of the people of Jerusalem. He describes them as the daughter of troops. They are the ch children of a warfaring people. People who engage in warfare, but not with other nations, with themselves. People who engage in warfare with the poor and the oppressed 
and the vulnerable. That's Micah's issue. You're the daughter of a warmongering people. But now you're going to become the objects of hostility, not the agents of hostility. At the end of verse 1, he says, your king has been struck on the cheek. And you know that that's an act of disrespect, an act of shame to strike, slap someone across the the cheek. And and it's a picture of Judah's leaders being subdued. And in all three sieges, the leaders were subdued. Hezekiah was certainly subdued as he had to buy off Sennacherib, even though the Lord intervened and, and brought about a great deliverance for them on that occasion. Jehoiakim was certainly struck across across the face as he was humbled and humiliated and dragged to Babylon. And what could you say about Zedekiah, whose eyes were gouged out? He too was struck on the face. These leaders of of Judah were humiliated. And uh, they were unable to to lift a single finger to defend themselves. It's interesting that the king, the leader, is described as the judge. The judge. Not the king. Prophets tended not to use the word king because of its pagan connotations. He refers here to the judge. It's almost like it's intentional. Because these these leaders will be helpless, unlike the great judges in Israel's past. Men like Gideon, who was able to fight the Midianites, who had swooped across the Jordan and wreaked havoc. And Gideon, with God's help, was able to muster a, a little army and drive the Midianites out. But not in this case. These leaders are, are just humiliated, utterly humiliated. The point in all of this is that God's people are in a predicament. Their leaders have been humiliated. False prophets are preaching lies and saying whatever it is people want them to say. Injustice and oppression are now the distinguishing marks of God's people. A people who should be walking in the statutes of God's law. It was a mess. And what they desperately, desperately needed was help from heaven. That's what they needed to get out of this mess was help from heaven. They needed repentance, they needed forgiveness, they needed mercy, and they needed a savior. In many senses, as you look around 21st century Scotland, there are some striking similarities. The church is in a predicament. Less than 2% of the Scottish population are now thought to be genuine Christians. Scotland is in a predicament in, in, in the sense that Uh, we are a long way from the reputation that we once had of being a land of the book. The land of one book, namely the Bible. And it's not difficult, is it, to find church leaders who will say whatever society wants them to say. That's not a difficult exercise. We live in a secular-driven society that is laying seeds to the church where it is becoming increasingly difficult for the church to believe the things that they believe and, and, and to take the Bible as their final authority. As a secularist society squeezes the church, it's becoming increasingly difficult. And what we need is help from heaven. What we need is a savior. What we, what we need is the intervention of God. And that's exactly where Micah takes us next, which encourages me no end. Because the story of Micah is not all doom and gloom. It's a story which is infused with hope. 
God will intervene. God will send the Savior. God will do something in the future. That's the message of Micah. And I'm excited to be part of the Christian church because if nothing else, that's the message of Christmas, isn't it? One of hope. It's not all doom and gloom. Yes, we are sinners and yes, we deserve God's judgment. But God has provided a Savior in the person of his Son. God has intervened and sent us the the help that we desperately need. So much then for the siege. What about the ruler or the saviour as it is in your notes? Well, Micah, in typical Micah fashion, follows this description of doom and gloom with a picture of hope. Israel's king has been carried off in shame, but Micah predicts the coming of a king who will provide lasting security for his people and whose influence and dominion will extend to the ends of the earth. I know that ultimately all of this will be fulfilled in the new heaven and the new earth. But but it breaks in with the coming of Christ. Micah 5 verse 2 is uh, one of the great Christmas texts Because the king, the deliverer, the ruler that Micah is predicting 700 years before he came was none other than Jesus. So he begins in verse 2, his message of hope. He says, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. That's a surprise, isn't it? Oh, you, Bethlehem. We'd never have expected that. We would have expected, oh, but you, Jerusalem the great city of David, or you, Zion, from you will come forth a a deliverer who is from everlasting. But no, it's from you, Bethlehem, little Bethlehem. It was so little that it wasn't even mentioned in the list of cities that Joshua conquered when he took possession with the Israelites of the promised land. Such a small place, such an insignificant place. It's not even listed in that list. It didn't make the top 100. But it's from this place called Bethlehem that a ruler would come. Bethlehem means house of bread. Ephrathah means fruitful or fruitful place. And it seems to have been the ancient name for Bethlehem or the region in which Bethlehem was situated. And Bethlehem had been a fruitful place, hadn't it? Over the years it was the home of Naomi and her husband Elimelech. Remember who went to Moab? And there Elimelech died, but Naomi returned with Ruth, the Moabites, who met Boaz, and together they became the ancestors of the Lord Jesus. It was a fruitful place. Bethlehem was the home of a man called Jesse. Remember Jesse? And Samuel was sent to anoint one of his sons as the future king of Israel to Bethlehem. Samuel went with his bottle of oil. And all of, all of Jesse's sons passed before him. And God said, none of these. And, and then they said, well, haven't you any other sons? And then they sent for the nobody that nobody noticed, a little boy minding sheep, and brought him in. And Samuel anointed him as the future king of Israel. And remember when Goliath came out to taunt the Israelites? Goliath from Gath, the Philistine. Who was it that was brought out to fight Goliath and secure a great victory for the people of Israel? Oh, it was this little boy from Bethlehem. This little boy from nowhere. 
this insignificant boy from this insignificant place that, that was brought out to fight this great battle, secure this great victory. And here we're being told by Micah that from Jerusalem, from Bethlehem rather, another David will come, a greater than David, who will fight a far greater battle and secure a far greater victory. And his name will be Jesus, of course. Why Bethlehem? The answer to that question is, I don't know. It was in Bethlehem that David was promised that there would be no end to his kingdom. That a son would sit on his throne and, and that son would, the reign of that son would never end. Bethlehem such a significant place. In, in many ways and in other ways it's not even mentioned in the list. It's, it's the least of the clans. It's just a tiny, insignificant, obscure place. But that's God's way, isn't it? Always, often in the Bible, God takes insignificant people. God works in, in insignificant places, obscure places, so that he can have all of the glory. Look at the priority of this ruler. Verse 2, it says, he will come forth to me. I think that's really important. He'll come forth to me. This one who would come out of Bethlehem and out of the womb of Mary was for God. It was for God that he would come. It was to serve God's purposes. It was to secure God's deliverance. It was to save God's people. It was to do God's work and God's will that this deliverer came from Bethlehem. This principle, I think, is uh, important as well. I mean, how tragic it would have been if, if uh, Jesus had come to serve his own, his own purpose but he came instead to fulfill the purpose of his father. And I say that to you because in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. If there's another way that these people can be redeemed without me drinking this bitter cup of judgment, if it's possible for this cup to be taken away from me, then take it away now. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. See the importance of that statement it's made 700 years before Jesus came? He comes forth to me. It's to do my work that he has come. And then it says he will rule over Israel. He rules over his people by his word. Isn't that the very core of the gospel? Isn't that the very core of the Christian message? That when a person becomes a Christian, they surrender to the lordship of Christ. Jesus becomes their king and they become part of his kingdom and he rules over them through his word. They obey his word. They follow the instructions of his word because these are the instructions of their king as, and their king rules over them. And then it talks about his origins. It says he comes from of old and from ancient days. From of old and from antiquity. He comes and back into eternity. It's not just the arrival of something new. This is someone who has his roots in the past. In antiquity. Micah is clearly expecting a supernatural figure. He comes from eternity. And he will continue into eternity. I think John put it best. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. The statements about him coming from old and from ancient of days also implies that this is not a spontaneous invention of God. Jesus was always part of God's 
purpose and God's plan. So what of all of this then, this ruler that is predicted, this saviour that's predicted? Well, the Old Testament were looking forward to the coming of Christ in the way that we look back to the coming of Christ. They're looking forward in exactly the same way as we're looking back. The whole Bible is about Jesus. In the Old Testament, Jesus is predicted. In the Gospels, Jesus is revealed. In the book of Acts, Jesus is preached. In the epistles, Jesus is explained. And in the book of Revelation, Jesus is anticipated. Jesus is at the center of this book. Micah, 700 years before he comes, is looking forward to the coming of Jesus. If you miss Jesus, you've missed everything. If you miss Jesus, you miss everything. Because it's all about him. He is the great deliverer that God promised to send. Here is the second thing about this uh, ruler or this saviour and and that is that a delay in his coming is envisaged in in verse 3 I think it is in verse 3 it says therefore he shall be given up until the time when she who is in labour has to give birth and then it says and the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. So there's a delay. Two things need to happen before this ruler comes. First of all, until the time when she who is in labor bears a son. Some people think that that's referring to the birth of a child that will mark the end of the exile. And maybe, it, maybe, maybe that's right. Some people think it's referring to Mary giving birth to Jesus. And that makes sense, doesn't it? The ruler is not going to come until Mary gives birth to him. But it's interesting, back in in Micah chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, Micah uses this picture of birth pains to describe the hardship and the struggles that Jerusalem is going through. And, And then he says, he talks about Jerusalem giving birth and and uses it as a picture of the people being snatched from Jerusalem, taken from Jerusalem, and dragged across the desert. And I think what what he is speaking of here is actually this giving birth is that Jerusalem will give birth to her children in the sense that they will be pulled from her. Pulled from her and dragged across the desert into exile as prisoners of war. And the other thing which he mentions is that the rest of his brothers will return to join the Israelites. I don't really fully get that statement but the best shot at and an answer is that um, in some way that must have been fulfilled in the aftermath of the exile as they returned to Jerusalem. There's no northern tribes and southern tribes. There's just the return of the people of God. And there is this coming together of the people of God. And these two things will need to take place before this ruler that Micah is speaking about will come. But the point I want you to think about is that there was a delay. There was the exile to undergo. There was 400 years of silence between the testaments to experience. But there's no delay now. Jesus has come. We don't have to wait to experience the blessings of this deliverer. The the good news of Christmas is that God has sent his son. His son has come. And these blessings that we are about to look out Look at here in the next 
point. All of these blessings are not something that are way off in the future. Maybe they are way off in the future in their fullness. But the reality of these blessings can be experienced now because God's deliverer has come and we each can know him personally. Here's the third thing then. It's the shepherd. Look at the king uh, and and the description of him as a great shepherd. Verse 4, he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely For then his greatness will reach the ends of the earth and he will be our peace. Let me just try and break that down a little bit. His strength. He will stand in the place of authority. This coming ruler will not simply enjoy human strength, but the strength of the Lord. He will draw on divine resources to provide for his people. Isaiah Micah's contemporary in Jerusalem said he will be the mighty God and even though he walks amongst us as a tender plant and even though we esteem him not the government of the world will rest on his shoulders this coming ruler will be no ordinary ruler he will stand in the place of authority and then he talks about his shepherding care he will shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord Shepherd his sheep. Israel's kings were supposed to be shepherds who cared for their people as a shepherd cares for their sheep. But this ruler will come and he will be a good shepherd unlike them who exploited the poor and oppressed them. This coming ruler that Mike is looking forward to will be a good shepherd. He will, he will call his name, his sheep by name. He will individually pursue them. He will call his sheep by name and they will follow him. This shepherd will lay down his life for the sheep to the extent, that is the extent of his care for for them. See him minister to his disciples, Jesus, and defend them against the criticism of the religious leaders. Watch him pursue sheep amongst the crowd, go home with a man called Zacchaeus and revolutionize his heart. Watch him weep with two sisters at the grave of their brother. See him heal those who've been ravaged by disease and hear him as he groans as he's confronted with life in a fallen world. Hear him as he ministers to the crowd even on the way to the cross. Weep not for me but weep for yourselves, he says. Think of his shepherding care for you as an individual. Think about how he has sustained you in your Christian life. Think about how he has pursued you when you went astray and brought you back to the fold. He is the great shepherd. And Micah is looking forward to the coming of not only a great ruler, but a great shepherd. Look at the security that he provides for verse 4. And they will dwell secure. Can you imagine the desire of the people of Judah to, to feel secure from the, from the threat of an invading army. Imagine living in a city that's completely surrounded. These people would long for a ruler who would provide them with a sense of security. See the security that Jesus provides. I know my sheep, he says. I call them by name. 
No one will ever pluck them from my hand. Nobody will ever pluck them from my hand. Nobody. They are mine forever. Secure in my keeping. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8. He says, I am convinced that neither life nor death, neither angels nor demons, things present nor anything in the future, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Security, eternally secure in Christ. This coming ruler will provide eternal security for his people. They will never perish. They will enjoy eternal, everlasting life. And when the accuser rises to accuse them in God's courtroom and says, ah, but what about that sin? Their mediator will rise to say, Your Honor, that sin was paid for in full at the cross. And the judge will rise to say, Overruled, Satan. Your accusations don't stand. They're mine forever. And they'll be welcomed into the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, where they will shine as trophies of his grace forever. Eternal security. That's what this ruler will give And look at his universal reign. His reign will extend throughout the earth. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. I mean, as soon as Jesus was born, as soon as Jesus was born, it was clear that his kingdom was not going to be confined within the borders of Israel. Look at those strange men who studied the stars and God spoke to them and sent them to Bethlehem to bow before this infant king. These strangers from Persia or wherever they were from, somewhere in the east, and the east is a big place, so we better not be too specific. Look into the book of Acts and see a man arrested by the grace of God on his way back down into Africa, Ethiopia, in a chariot. And Philip, the evangelist, ministers to him, and he's converted. And he carries the gospel down into that great continent of Africa. Go to Acts 16. And see the message of this king being carried by Paul and uh, Silas and others up into Philippi. And see, see a, a businesswoman and a slave girl and, and, a, and a jailer converted and coming together as the first church. And then the gospel reaches Europe. This king is going to be a universal king. And I know that it, it will be ultimately fulfilled in the new heaven and the new earth. But already it breaks in now. Because there's not a country in the world today where the tentacles of this king have not reached. Where people have not surrendered to his kingship, his lordship, and made, them, made him king of their lives. His peace. This is the last thing, I think, and then we're finished. His peace. And he shall be their peace. That's what Micah says. He is their peace. He gives them peace. He is the prince of peace. He would die on a cross, actually to atone for their sin that left them estranged and at war with God. He would become the solution to that great problem and enable them to be reconciled to this God that they were created for but had become estranged from. He would be the source of their peace. And he would give them his peace, a peace that passes all understanding, a peace that's not conditioned by external circumstances, Peace that comes from him and reigns in their hearts. Peace isn't just the absence of war. It's a sense of well-being and it's a sense of wholeness. It, 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 it's, 
It is the experience of Spafford when he got the news that his wife and daughters had been shipwrecked off the coast of France and got there to discover that his wife alone survived. And you can almost feel them shake as they hug each other, realizing that their daughters had been drowned at sea. And then to see him write that great hymn afterwards, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, he has taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. He is the Prince of Peace. This coming ruler will give peace. A number of years ago when I was a young minister, I was involved in a funeral service of a lady who died and fought a brave battle, but died eventually, succumbed to the disease that she was suffering from. And at her funeral service, the minister said these words. He said, there is one word that can uh, summarize the life of our dear sister who has now passed into heaven over these last few months, and the one word is peace. She had the prince of peace, and she had his peace in her heart. So, there it is. There was the siege. They were in a mess, a predicament. They needed intervention from heaven. There was a savior, a ruler. Isaiah, not Isaiah, Micah looks forward to the coming of this great ruler. And he is a fierce ruler. He will stand in the place of authority. He is a great ruler. And then Micah tells us, but he's also a great shepherd. He'll care for his people. He gives them his peace. He gives them security. And he watches over them as a shepherd watches over his sheep. It reminds me of an incident in the Chronicles of Narnia. I don't know if you've read Lewis's work, but in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Susan meets Mrs. Beaver. And uh, she begins, they begin to talk about Aslan. And Mrs. Beaver says, Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan. I, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mrs. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. He is the king, I tell you. And that's the ruler that Micah has just described. He isn't safe. He is the king of kings and the lord of lords. But he is good. Good to his people. And what a wonderful description Micah has given to us of him. Jesus is a great ruler. And he was pivotal. Isn't it really interesting that Jesus, this coming ruler, is pivotal in Micah's thinking 700 years before he even came. And in this room, in this church building this morning, Jesus is absolutely pivotal in the minds of so many people. He is central. But I wonder if Jesus is pivotal in your life. Is he your great ruler? Is he your great king? Is he your shepherd? Has he given you his peace? If not, I trust and pray that, that he will this Christmas and that you'll come to know him in a deep, personal way, in the way that Micah has described him. Thank you.